diving into data. Diving, di diving, d data. Diving into data with TC Riley. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Diving into Data. I am your host, TC Riley. How are we doing out there? How's everyone doing? Things are uh, progressing in the world as it relates to the COVID stuff. I think at the end of this week, every state will have some level of opening. So hopefully you're able to get out and do a little bit more. Hope everyone's staying healthy, but uh, we aren't going to dive again. We don't talk about COVID here. We know it's a COVID-free zone here on diving into data as much as we can possibly avoid it. So I am excited and thrilled to bring you another exciting episode this week. Our title this week, Are You Content With Your Content? See what I did there? Haha, look clever, I know. So we're going to be talking about content analytics, understanding the importance of content analytics and evaluating all the content that your company or your business might be creating, or even you as an individual might be creating for a personal brand. We're going to dive into content analytics really deep and understand what are the different types of content metrics that we really need to be paying attention to. And then specifically, obviously this is a market scale show for B2B content metrics. How do we set those? What are some important things to keep an eye on? The other two segments we're going to do today, we are going to touch on um, a little bit of a department leadership kind of uh, PSA, some things around adjusting to the new normal with COVID, how you might need to reposition your department slightly. Um, these are things, frankly, from personal experience that I'm dealing with here with our analytics department here at MarketScale. So just kind of wanted to share what I've learned over the last month or two, um, what, frankly, I maybe haven't been as good at as I should be, and making sure that all of you are doing better. Um, and the last thing, we are going to have another episode of our industry rapid fire, our last segment where we quickly go through a couple of industries and how they're using data in ways that might not naturally pop into mind. Specifically today, we're going to be looking at sports and how AI to tie into our main topic last week is used for treating and um, identifying brain injuries and trauma, as well as entertainment. And we're going to talk about optimized streaming content suggestions. Um, an interesting little article I read and something that, as many of you have been at home, probably been a lot of Disney Plus, Netflix, Amazon Prime, those kind of things on the TV. So how do those platforms keep ensuring that you're getting suggestions, getting titles that you didn't even know you wanted, but you need in your life? So we're going to dive into that. Excited to get it going. So without further ado, let's dive into some data. Our first topic today is all about content analytics. Again, our title is, Are You Content With Your Content? A little play on words there, but what we're gonna dive into here is really understanding the data around content. This is something that just about every company creates content in some regard. They know they should, they should be doing it, hopefully you're doing it. But something that's always been kind of tricky is how do we make sense of this? How do we make sure that what we're doing is having a business impact? Frankly, creating content is not necessarily a, a cheap endeavor all the time, depending on the quality and the depth of that content. So we need to ensure that we're actually getting something from this. It's paying its dividends back to the company. Uh, what should we be looking for there? What are the types of things that are out there? So we're going to dive into that a little bit further. Um, I, this started because, frankly, this is critical for us as market scale. Um, not only is market sale a you know heavily uh, invested in a content creation side, that's a lot of what we do. It's definitely not everything that we do. Um, do a lot more awesome stuff here, but a lot of what our business is built around is creating content, creating media channels and promoting those. Um, and more specifically for the model that our business operates and thrives upon, which is the CDA model. If you're a market scale client, you've probably heard of this. Um, it's absolutely critical for us. 
Um, what CDA is, is create, distribute, analyze. It is a true cycle, CDA from C to D to A back to C. Um, it is a closed loop that we use to ensure that we are not only helping create awesome content for our clients, but that we're helping ensure that it's effectively distributed. We've talked before about no matter how good your content is, if you don't distribute it the right way, if you bury it in the wrong place and never promote it, you're not going to get value from it. And then we analyze that content. We understand what worked, what didn't work, what worked, uh, what could we do better at, um, maybe what's something that we need to capitalize more on that went really well. It's truly a cyclical process in order to feed the next cycle of content creation to ensure that we're always getting better. There's no reason to just create content in today's day and age with the tools and the data uh, that we have at our fingertips that you should be basing content decisions solely from gut. Um, yes, obviously we need content to look good or sound good or hit the message, hit the target that we're aiming for with the piece of content. Of course that's critical, but are you really getting stuff out of it? Um, this is a kind of a differentiator in my opinion from what market scale does compared to some of the other content creation firms out there. Uh, a lot of people can create content in order to effectively create data driven content that is truly analyzing and taking in every performance aspect of that content in order to create better and better and better content in the future. That's something that I'm, I'm proud that differentiates us from some of the other firms out there. So obviously it's something we pay attention to. So when we're talking about content analytics, the first thing um, I think that we need to look at is the types of content metrics, um, the type of analytics that are available for content right now. Um, a lot of this comes from an Acrolinks article I found caught on content analytics. Um, it was a real, I think it was a blog post that they created a while back, but it was incredibly precise as to the four categories that we're about to go through. And I thought it gave a great kind of general roadmap, um, an overview of the different things that, um, frankly, probably a lot of people are only looking at one or two of these categories. And you need to ensure that you're looking at all of them to ensure that you have effective content creation process and review. So the very first of these four types that we're going to talk about is content production metrics. This is the more um, production pre-release side. Um, frankly, if you work with market scale, this is a lot of what we deal with internally and look at internally. Um, but this is dealing with timelines. This is dealing with the production and the delivery of content. Is it on time? Is it meeting the expectations? Um, are you ensuring consistent publishing? Is it being distributed in the right way? Are resources being effectively managed and utilized to create this content? Again, if you use a firm like MarketScale, frankly, we handle a lot of this for you. We consistently optimize around our production. We're always looking at things like how long something took um, to create. Are we able to ensure on-time delivery? Are we able to beat deadlines? How much rework did we have? How many edits do we need to make? All these things are critical if you're actually creating the content. Again, luckily, if you're a market scale client listening to this, hopefully you know that this is all handled by the uh, us fine folks here at market scale, so you don't really have to dive into this as much. But even if you're in that situation where you have another firm creating it, you still have deadlines, you still have timelines, you still have targets, you still have a content schedule to hit. Are you keeping up with that? Are you ensuring that every little box is checked in the creation and distribution cycle? Because before we even get to what you're probably thinking of in content analytics, which is more the performance and how it's doing, we need to ensure that we're creating it effectively. Don't forget about the what I'll call the operational side of this equation. Make sure we don't ignore that. Make sure you're doing the due diligence there and ensuring that everything's on a timeline that time and money is being invested in the right places internally and that your processes don't have gaps where you have people, um, frankly, who are you know too much on their plate or too little management in that regard. So those are important. We're not going to dive too much into that. Um, but the, the next one that we're going to dive into is something that probably everyone's very aware of, the content performance metrics. So what we're talking about here is, frankly, 
what is this getting from me? Uh, how much are we getting back from this piece of content? How are people engaging with it? Things like that. There's two groups that this article mentioned that I think are actually an incredibly great point around content performance metrics. And it's looking at vanity metrics and impact metrics. Um, this is something that it's almost like they stole the thoughts right out of my head. These are something when we're talking about vanity metrics, this is something you've heard me reference on the show before the counting numbers. No matter what type of data or analysis you're looking at, there's almost always a maybe a low hanging fruit data point or some very, very basic data point that is kind of the go to or default KPI for a lot of people. We're talking about content. We're talking about views. We're talking about plays. We're talking about listens. We're talking about sessions. These are the very, very high level, again, counting numbers that are telling you at the most basic level, if you're not really understanding what's going on with that content, how many people are seeing it? Yes. Now, of course, there's some element that it is critical to have um, enough people seeing the content. We talked about how distribution is critical, how effective distribution allows you to ensure that everyone's seeing this that should be seeing it. Yes, the, those are. I'm not saying these vanity metrics are irrelevant or they shouldn't be considered. What I'm saying is that we need to dive past those if you really want to understand something because having a million plays doesn't mean anything if it doesn't actually impact your business, if it doesn't have any ROI. There's a hint at our next little section we're going to go through here in a second. But um, don't get too caught up in that. Uh, this is the this is a tangent or comparable to um, when I talk with clients a lot. One of the first things people who maybe aren't as involved in web analytics always go to the flash word is bounce rate. What's our bounce rate like? Yes, bounce rate matters. Bounce rate, obviously, those of you who aren't aware, the number of people who pretty much hit your site on a specific page and then immediately leave. They don't engage further on your website. Uh, that is a it is a KPI. Frankly, in 2020, with the amount of tracking we have. Um, and frankly, also the fact that Google has come out and said things like this don't matter as much. Uh, a bounce rate is not an indicator of how well your site's doing. If you are looking at just that number, the number of sessions on a website, or when we shift to the content lane, if we're just looking at plays or views of a piece of content, you aren't looking deep enough. You're not understanding how that's actually impacting the business. Because as I tell a lot of our clients, especially in B2B, I would rather a video market scale creates have 10 views only 10 views, but each of those views was from a decision maker for a potential client of one of our clients and something that could actually lead to you getting revenue, getting a deal, getting money, what the end goal of that content is. I would rather have those 10 views than 10,000 random Joe Schmoes off the street who have no intention of ever purchasing your product. Yeah, if we look at 10,000 versus 10, it's a no-brainer which one looks better, but again, those are kind of vanity metrics. They're high level. They don't address, are the right people engaging with this? Are they actually seeing it all? So what the other side of that, the vanity metrics, is what I'm going to call impact metrics. That's the term I'm going to go with. What these are are the metrics that I think actually matter to get to the ROI again, which is going to be our next section, which at the end of the day is what we're trying to drive for with this content. Those impact metrics are things like goal completions, engagement with the content, sales cycle length, and how it's been impacted by the release of content. You need to know what actually matters in all of these things. Again, a goal completion, if you have an e-commerce setup, can be a purchase. More realistically, in the B2B world, that's probably some type of engagement on the website, um, a chatbot submission, a form submission, capturing someone's email address, um, getting some information from them and generating a lead. That is really critical. Um, engagement with the content. I don't need to necessarily just know how many people played the content. I need, or the video, let's say, in this instance, 
I need to know how many people actually watch the whole video. How many of them actually watch the detailed part, you know, the center of that video that we created that we think is the real gold mine in this piece of content? How many people are actually engaging with that? How many people are seeing it? If everyone's hitting play and then thinking, eh, I don't like this intro and popping off after 10 seconds, obviously the intro is not what the video is about. That's not what we're going for. So we need to understand that and do better at diving deeper with that engagement data in order to really see how the content's performing beyond just the number of people who hit the play button. Um, one tertiary one that they mentioned in the article that I think is worth noting is sales cycle length. Um, so especially again in B2B, long sales cycles typically can be tricky to identify how uh, you know one piece of content contributed to that. However, from a holistic view, if you're able to, uh, again, look at a pre and post content world, um, a lot of businesses have this break at some point. Maybe it's a um, not a pre content, but just a content wasn't as emphasized versus content is emphasized and followed up on. Um, being able to differentiate what the sales cycle length and how often you're converting opportunities, converting leads to opportunities, all of these sales cycle and sales funnel metrics, how those were impacted by these efforts from a holistic view is critical because it can kind of paint a broad picture. Again, no, having releasing a certain video on a certain date and realizing that, well, the month after that, we converted at a much higher rate. It doesn't mean it's a one-to-one -one comparison. However, it still can be a good kind of tangential data point to consider. At the end of the day, with these performance metrics, you need to know what actually matters. Don't get caught up in those vanity metrics all the time. Make sure that you're identifying those impact metrics, the things that really matter, the answering the goal of why did you create this piece of content? You had a goal in mind. What is actually hitting that goal? Don't just look at the content itself. The next one, as we move past content performance, I've hinted at a couple times here already, ROI metrics. Unfortunately, this is probably the trickiest one to talk about. Um, there's frankly no easier standard way to do this. ROI from a piece of content is inherently tricky to calculate. Um, however, as tricky as it can be, this is critical to actually proving and understanding what really matters, proving that these investments are worthwhile. So even though this one might seem like a doozy and you might think, man, I, I don't even know how to start with this, it is worth pursuing, I promise you. This is as important of an investment, frankly, in understanding the ROI and how to effectively capture that information as it is actually investing in the content itself. So make sure you you, you know power through, uh, find a way to look at these. What we're talking about kind of at the surface level for ROI metrics, um, attribution and tracking are really important if you're ever gonna succeed with this. You need to be able to uh, build a system um, where you can truly understand from a user perspective um, which people are engaging with content and what else they are doing. You need to look at that user or that potential customer outside of just the simple, uh, you know, just the actual session itself. What else are they doing? Are there multiple touch attribution points? Is the same user coming back over and over? The further down that path you get, frankly, the trickier technically it gets, especially as we continue to see privacy laws rolled out that are frankly kind of uh, creeping uh, back and back and back further and further on what we can capture, what a company can capture in terms of data and use. However, even from a more uh, granular level, just doing the right things with something like Google Analytics and Google Tag Manager can help you do this. Ensuring that you have, uh, for instance, events set up on your site so that you can attribute an event to a user or a session and then looking at what else that user did within that session. That's critical. You have to have that information. If you're looking at content metrics in a vacuum of just how they're engaging with the content without understanding what else they did, you're never going to succeed. 
All right, so now that we, we have that attribution in place, we have some way of being able to effectively kind of capture that and tie in the, this person listened to content and here's what else they did. Really at the end of the day, what we're looking at is the impact of sales, the revenue gained versus the money spent on a piece of content. That's where you can get a little more granular. Again, frankly, we could do an entire show, maybe we will in the future, on ROI as it relates to marketing content and media since that is one of the uh, the FAQs of the marketing world is, well, how do I prove ROI? Um, we don't have time today to get into all the specifics of how you're going to do it. However, it is critical to ensure that when you're creating content, you have a system set up that not only you can get the data from that content and the associated actions um, and kind of uh, follow that person through the sales cycle and everything that relates to that point, but you also need to make sure that you have defined KPIs on the sales revenue um, the bottom line side so that you know what you're going for so that you can frankly effectively build that system to get that number. It's critical. It's tricky. It's not easy. I get it. However, you must do it. You need to find a way to make this happen so that you can effectively and truly evaluate how that content is performing. The last category mentioned here, I think probably is uh, maybe frankly less important. I should, I don't want to diminish it, but um, the last section of the article mentioned was content quality and governance metrics. This ties in a little bit um, with the content production metrics and the things on that side. Um, but what this is kind of referring to and a point that made uh, it made that I think is very critical is that everything we've talked to up to this point has pretty much been retroactive. It's after an action is or isn't completed. It's after data is captured, what the story is telling you for future iterations. There's a need and a desire to have that real-time data so you can, obviously, we always want to identify a problem when it's happening, not after it happened. It's great to be able to solve, oh, well, hey, that happened. Make sure we don't do that again next time. That's a great first step. Frankly, that's something that not enough people do. However, that isn't the only thing we should do. We also need to look for what other real-time data we can capture and use. In MarketScale's instance, I mentioned that CDA cycle that we follow. We always follow it. We always stick to it. We ensure that we create, distribute, and then we analyze that content because we have that option to kind of be iterative. Um, look at a piece of content retroactively and say, oh, this did or didn't work. We need to do this and this better. You know, Get all of our insights and go down that path. But I would also encourage you to strive to find a way, again, internally um, talking about managing different stakeholders, both with internal stakeholders and client stakeholders on a piece of content, effectively setting that up, effectively ensuring that all of them are hitting their KPIs or whatever whatever data point you need to kind of identify that all the boxes are being checked off. Um, when we're talking about content quality metrics, which is one section of this, it's reviewing and grading the accuracy of a content. Are you ensuring it's efficient and it's low uh, cost? Are you ensuring that we're not wasting money, time, and effort on these? You can kind of do that real time with certain things. Again, even if it's simply a, a high level KPI like okay, we, it should take us a week to produce this and understanding how we're tracking to that goal. That, that's, a, that's a good need. That, that's something that you can absolutely hit and keep an eye on to ensure that from a content quality perspective and that you're not redoing all this, that you're ensuring you're following best practices there. And the other little side this mentions besides content quality metrics is governance metrics. Again, this goes a little bit more towards the management side. Obviously, content creation, whether you're doing it all internally or whether you're using an outside firm, has lots of different components, lots of different people. Rarely is there a single person that is doing the blog writing and recording podcasts and filming the video and editing the video and distributing the video. It takes a village to do a lot of these things. So ensuring that you know what each of those stakeholders kind of relies on. 
uh, what a content manager um, is going to be looking at, what they care about in terms of deadlines and understanding the actual content itself. The publishing side, whoever's responsible for that, understanding their deadlines, what they need to effectively do their job. If you have tertiary services like maybe translation services or something like that, ensuring what is important to them is being followed. I think this data point overall kind of rather than content quality and governance metrics being um, a critical key or group of content metrics, I think it's more of a reminder, frankly, to me that you need to ensure that the process is optimized and that you are really leaning on those content production metrics um, in every regard, not just for the content, but in the creation and the management of that content. When we step back overall, we just talked about those four major roles. Again, the four major components of content metrics are content production metrics, the actual production of it, how that's going, content performance metrics, again, those vanity versus impact metrics, understanding what you should really be looking for, the ROI metrics, which are the next step to content performance, which is really being able to see how this directly is returning its investment, and then the content quality and governance, which ties back in with the production, but is more around the management and ensuring the proper creation of the content. By doing all those, there's always going to be a component that this is an iterative process. This is not something you snap your fingers on whenever you're capturing this data and fix every part of it. Uh, I mentioned the village aspect of this. There could be lots of failure points throughout a content creation process and cycle that you need to really look at and understand what is truly impacting at the end of the day, the value of this content to my company. Uh, they, they mentioned the article, a one metric at a time approach. That's totally fine. You don't need to, again, solve all the world's problems at once. Um, but I think something else to take away is that defining and understanding your KPIs from the start is critical to start this process. And that's actually going to lead us right into our next topic, which is selecting B2B content KPIs. So we're going to take a quick commercial break and we will be right back with more Diving Into Data. Today, 80% of companies are using online learning to grow their business. And MarketScale's online learning solutions are simplifying how you can launch yours. From building an enterprise learning management system, to course design by our professional instructional design team, to full video production and graphic design, your online university will be best in class. MarketScale's blockchain-powered digital credential program makes it easy to add certifications for your courses, creating powerful brand awareness and authentication for your organization. Education is the highest form of marketing, and MarketScale is making it easier than ever to create and deploy training for your customers, partners, and employees. For more information on online learning solutions, visit MarketScale.com. Welcome back to Diving Into Data. Got a lot to pack into the last uh, 10 or so minutes of the show here, but we're going to hit on three more things. Um, as I mentioned writing, leading into the break, selecting B2B content KPIs, and then we're also still going to touch on the department leadership aspects coming out of a post-COVID world and wrap up, as we always do, with our industry rapid fire. But talking about B2B content KPIs, again, back to our are you content with your content title and theme this week? Something about B2B companies that you need to consider is that Content KPIs are not going to be the same for a, frankly, a B2C Instagram influencer type of person as they are for a B2B content manager and B2B companies. B2B is longer sales cycle. You have less direct attribution. It's typically a multiple touch point long cycle with lots of communications. So it's not going to be, um, frankly, as easy as it is on the B2C side to see which you know engagements with a piece of content directly led to a purchase. You're not going to have that line. As an example, 
um, of the need to effectively track all the impacts on a long sales cycle, not just looking at the last touch. Um, Yes, from a Google ad, you might be able to um, see that someone clicked on a Google ad, came into the site and converted your goal. That's great, that's awesome, especially in the B2C world, that's realistic. In a B2B world, someone might come to your site 20 times. They might have 10 different calls with you, shoot five emails off, um, engage with multiple pieces of content. So being able to set KPIs that uh, appreciate and understand that sales cycle are critical. In other words, frankly, what I'm telling you is don't just go to Google, type in content KPIs and run with them because there's a decent chances there's B2C content KPIs that aren't going to actually matter to you and aren't going to fit your business and business model. When we're talking about the KPIs, I think the most important thing to kind of keep in mind is lead generation. That's usually your best route to go. That's the most standard way that you can, uh, something that's realistic to track, frankly, based on B2B content engagement, but also it's the first step of that longer sales cycle. Yes, you'd love to be able to look at more of the lead conversion aspect, look at which of these turn to sales um, and how everything happens down the line, but realistically, lead generation is your, your best bet for the Uh, maybe the easiest route to go, but definitely the first place to go. Um, So it's looking at leads created directly from content. Um, It's looking at those who have consumed the content, looking again at that full session life cycle, um, and we're able to create a lead and ensuring that you have proper tracking and attribution of those in a CRM. There are lots of content platforms out there that can kind of assist with this. Um, Frankly, at MarketScale, we use something called HighSpot, which is a great little content tool that we're able to use to understand what clients and prospects have seen, not seen, how they're engaging with it. A tool like that is great, but even just having some general level, um, even if it's just the notes of your sales reps of, hey, have you seen that XYZ video we created? Just having that little tangential data point is still better than having nothing. So ensure that you have a system set up to look at lead generation, and then if you are successful in that, then get into the lead conversion, understanding what's truly shortening the cycle, what's leading to the biggest deals, but lead generation should be your starting point. Keep that in mind when it comes to content KPIs around your, again, B2B videos, podcasts, blogs, whatever it may be. And if you start there and set up a system around lead generation, you're probably gonna have success long-term from a bigger picture. The one other little point that I did wanna make um, is that campaign performance and relative success of those campaigns Um, is a very important B2B ad campaigns, email campaigns, whatever it may be. Um, That's not something we're going to dive in today, but that does make up another big section of what I will call content KPIs and B2B. So I figured it was worth notating at the end here. Um, And I wouldn't be uh, be able to wrap this segment up. I did also that last section, Search Engine Journal had a B2B content KPIs article that they released a while back um, that I stole a couple notes from. So thank you to the folks over there um, for letting us borrow their content. Alrighty, two more quick segments to hit on. The first, and we'll call this uh, our leadership rapid fire. Kind of just made that up on the spot, but um, I did want to do something that as we've gone through this COVID world, again, you know, we don't talk a lot of, on diving into data here about the, uh, uh, the virus. We try and steer clear of it. You get plenty of that elsewhere, but it is worth noting, um, frankly, something a little bit of this is maybe a personal anecdote. I'm going to sit by the campfire here and tell you guys a story. Um, of how I'm having to adjust as a department and business leader coming back to a new normal now that Texas specifically and the world overall are kind of moving into that post-COVID world. Um, Frankly, the first and most important thing I had to realize is that I needed to adjust to a new normal. Um, That, you know, that's all aspects of my life as a father and a husband and a homeowner and a citizen. All those things are going to be slightly different and there's ways I need to appreciate that. But as a professional, um, 
no company is going to be exactly the same post-COVID. Even if things get started back up, production lines ramp back up, your business, let's say from a production or output standpoint, is back to normal, things will still be different. So now is the opportunity for, I think, the leaders of businesses in America to kind of take the bull by the horns and um, be a true leader of your teams, of your departments, of your businesses. Um, understand that you're dealing with humans and that there are personal, professional, and emotional aspects to all of this. It's not simple. Um, so it, once you've acknowledged that there is that new normal, um, something that I frankly probably ignored for far too long, um, what we're having to do here at Market Scale is repositioning and shifting our department. So luckily we were not impacted much from the staff perspective. Um, we have a strong business model and great leadership in our company that we've been able to um, not only survive, but frankly thrive throughout this epidemic and pandemic. However, not every company is going to be that lucky. Um, some of you are going to require almost a fresh restart, um, understanding, hey, I, there are going to be people out there that your department of 50 people is down to a department of five people after this. Um, there's going to be a very new normal and a new way to approach it. Even those of us who are lucky like us and me in my position that it's just going to require a shift with the same resources, we do need to understand that what market scale is going to be able to do, um, again, to get specific, our ability to create on-site videos versus some of the other things that we need to do in terms of live broadcasting, more remote opportunities in a post-COVID world um, are changing. So we need to be able to effectively adapt and shift. Something from a data perspective that I wanted to kind of emphasize here don't get too stuck on old KPIs. Very rarely are uh, KPIs going to change that that much with situations, but what we're dealing with here isn't normal. Um, perhaps your old KPIs are just as applicable. You don't. You can ignore this section. Go ahead and skip ahead a couple minutes. This doesn't matter to you. But a lot of us are going to have to be open to change, into adapting our KPIs, to understanding how the business itself is adapting and evolving and going to change, and how my department. Um, and from a data perspective, the uh, company and department KPIs, how those need to be changed. Um, don't get too stuck in the old way of things. Things are different. That's okay. It's actually a great opportunity. It's something exciting to me almost um, that there's going to be new data to be had. And we're going to be able to look into dark corners that maybe we haven't looked into before. Um, so it's an exciting time in that regard. Um, and then the last thing is I'm talking about repositioning the department. I also want to mention something I'm currently doing. Um, and going through with our different partners and folks that we work with is now's a great time to kind of reevaluate spend and ongoing investments, frankly. Um, obviously, there's going to be potentially a need to cut costs in some businesses, maybe a lot of businesses. Um, but looking at what you can do to reduce potential fixed costs without raising variable costs. Um, obviously, the goal of any business, um, it should be the goal of any business, is to drive things towards fixed and away from variable costs. So be careful about leaning too heavily into models or systems or practices that are going to really boost those variable costs. Um, see if you can still emphasize, you know, uh, working on the fixed cost side. Um, but additionally, right now, rather than just transferring from variable to fixed costs, also look at those existing um, fixed costs, maybe those fixed costs that are recurring costs, that they aren't, you know, truly fixed. Um, they aren't, you know, uh, capital investments necessarily, but they are more standardized costs and what you can do to reduce those. That might be another avenue that a lot of people um, probably already are undertaking, but those of you who are not already looking down that path, I definitely encourage you to do so. Um, and then so on top of being able to accept this a new normal, um, being open to the fact that you're gonna need to potentially reposition your department from a data perspective, you might need to look at some new KPIs. The last thing is from more just a general leadership perspective, 
um, is ensuring your team's on board. Um, remember that if you are a business leader out there, you're a leader of people, not just employees. Um, frankly, this is one of the reasons I love Market School so dang much, and the reason I'm so happy here is because um, we are a people company that care about the people, not just employees. Um, that's not true for every company out there, depending especially on the size of the company. Frankly, the larger the company typically, um, the more you are kind of just a number and stuff. But no matter the size of your company, no matter who you are listening to this in your situation, remember that in a managerial or leadership position, they are still people that you are managing. They are not just employees. There's going to be uncertainty. You need to be a guide and lead your team through this. You need to embrace challenges and embrace change and be able to help your team see that. Um, if these shifts are occurring, whether it's a completely, you know, again, you're almost starting from scratch or if you're just kind of tweaking what you're doing, be prepared to explain to each person and role how they're going to be impacted. Take the time to do that. Um, if you're like me, this is something I think I failed on right at the start of this where I was so busy trying to uh, kind of make things run that I let my team, um, I kind of left them hanging a little bit, to be frank. It's something I failed at where I needed to be better about explaining to each of uh, my team members um, frankly, some of the other departments that we work with, how they're going to be impacted, what we need to consider, um, but also highlighting how this is an opportunity, um, how this is a growth opportunity. There are going to be new businesses in 10 years that are um, some of the pillars of the you know U.S. economy that weren't much before COVID, but they were able to adapt and overcome. If you look at just about any of the great business leaders out there, I specifically listened to a Mark a Cuban broadcast. He did a little bit ago talking about this, but um, there are going to be some amazing things that come from this. Yes, we're still not completely out of the weeds. Um, we still have uh, some uh, challenges to overcome as a country, as an economy, and as businesses. But there will be opportunity, um, and you have to force yourself to look at the bright side and help your team look at that bright side, look at the opportunity, and not just focus on the things maybe that are going away um, or the you know the, the negatives that have come from this. Focus on the positive, and the results will come around full circle. All right, enough of a leadership soapbox. Um, our last segment today, we're going to dive into a little bit of industry rapid fire. We never wrap up the shows anymore without a little industry rapid fire. So um, had two sources today. I went back one more time, dipped into my well of the Forbes Teradata program that Forbes Analytics Plus from Data to Answers um, for entertainment, which is our second one. Um, but the first one, we I promise I'm going to use other sources too. Um, it's actually called an Outlook India article. It's IANS Research. Um and it's a sports article that I found online. So thank you to them for providing this information for us to talk about. The first article is about the sports world. And so we talk about sports all the time here and in diving into data. If you listen a lot, you know that. Um, but this is kind of uh, tangential to sports. It's a component. But what this article was discussing was how researcher, researchers pardon me, from the University of Cambridge and Imperial College of London have developed an AI algorithm that can detect and identify different types of brain injuries. So for anyone, um, even if you're in hockey or soccer or other sports, you've heard a lot about this, but especially for my football fans out there, um, you know that head injuries is probably one of the biggest topics of the last decade or so. What this algorithm is able to do is it is able to analyze a CT scan of a brain of someone who had some type of head injury of some kind, head trauma, and they're able to quantify, segment, and analyze the different types of brain lesions from that CT in order to provide suggestions and do things and kind of group this data. CT scans, MRIs would fall into this bucket too, are not something that are really used quantitatively right now. Um, as far as healthcare is advanced into 
uh, technology and uh, utilizing data. Um, scans like that are still almost entirely qualitative in terms of how they're used. They're based on manual reviews. As we move forward, it's going to be thrilling to see kind of how uh, the quantitative side of that picks up even more than it has in the last couple of years. Um, but what this specific tool is looking at is it's taking a CT scan, it's analyzing the results, it's literally analyzing the images, um, and what it's doing is identifying different lesions and abnormalities, abnormalities that I can't talk today, on the brain and classifying them into different groups based on severity, type, um, other specific features of them. There's two real big purposes and kind of use cases for how this could significantly impact um, this kind of work and the studies in this brain injury kind of field moving forward. One of them, um, from a large kind of I'll call it the meta perspective, is you can use this on large databases to qualify these different and group these different injuries um, to understand the kind of the frequency and the severity of these different types. Um, that's going to be great from a kind of a research perspective. And then, but an in-practice perspective, um, is even right now, is that an emergency room could theoretically use something like this. Whenever they have someone come in with a brain injury, they run a scan. If they're able to run it through this system, they're going to be able to quickly identify um, whether further treatment is needed, um, specifically if we're looking more at the economic side of it, whether a stay in the hospital is needed and all the costs that come along with that, um, or if this can be effectively treated, uh, be treated at home or outside of the hospital with a regular doctor's visit. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating for me. It's something that I need to dig more into. I actually want to try and find and read this study. Um, being a massive football fan who's taken a lot of interest in the brain injury stuff, it really uh, kind of stands out to me. Um, but it's really interesting to see how AI, which was obviously our huge topic last week, um, is tying in in ways you might not think about. It's not just the sports themselves, but treating the injuries of the sports themselves. Our next rapid fire industry is the entertainment industry. So this is good dipping back into that Forbes Teradata, uh, Forbes Analytics Plus article I was talking about. And this was specifically looking at a how Disney Plus is personalizing viewing and the different algorithms and AI they use to do that. Uh, this is, I think, is especially analogous and kind of relevant to a lot of folks right now because not only is uh, you know what Disney Plus doing going to be some way related to what Netflix and Amazon Prime and Apple Plus and yada 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 are all doing. Um, seems like there's a hundred streaming platforms out there now, uh, but. It's probably something you've been consuming a lot recently, um, if you're anything like my family or anything like what everyone on uh, Facebook and Twitter and so on are talking about. So um, what these systems do is that uh, this is not a set formula for how this uh, how this operates, how this these platforms are able to recommend content to you. What do these are is our evaluate. Uh, I can't talk again. They're evolving algorithms where every piece of data that the platform is capturing based on your interaction are helping to constantly improve the recommendations. This is not just a, if you do A, then you go B. If you do C, then you go D. It's not a linear tree or path or anything like that. It's a constant algorithm that's constantly looking for not only new data points and new ways to analyze it, but even new variables and things to look at. This is all fed by your watch data, your view data, your click data. Um, what you not only what you watch, what you started watching, but how much of it did you watch? Did you take breaks and come back and finish it? Did you just watch a piece of it? Did you sit there and consume the entire thing at once? Um, also, from a uh, advertising almost perspective, what was shown on the menu? Um, everything. Not only is how are you engaging with the actual content, but what are you clicking on to even look at? Um, did you click on something and look at the trailer? Did you actually watch it? What did you just completely ignore and scroll right past? Uh, another uh, example of this they kind of specifically gave in this article was if someone watched a single one-off, you know, half-hour episode or a short, 
Um, you need to ensure that probably you recommend things that are other shorts. Someone might not be ready for a full movie there. Um, going back to Disney Plus, I can specifically tell you that I love The Mandalorian, the TV show that came out a little bit ago. Um, and I do love Star Wars and want to watch the movies. But after I watched Mandalorian, they were recommending some of the other TV shows, Rebels and Clone Wars that are out there. Sorry if you hate Star Wars and you're not a Star Wars geek like me. But um, they weren't necessarily showing me the full-length films that are also on Disney Plus because... The system was able to quickly realize that, hey, this person just watched a 45-minute show. They might not be ready to sit down for a three-hour movie. So all those components are kind of fed in. And again, what I really found interesting as they were talking to one of the folks at Disney Plus who builds this was that um, no single algorithm works for every user. So it has to be dynamic and it has to adapt with feedback. They have to be okay with building platforms um, and AI a little bit in a way. Um, now we're going to use that term all the time after last week's segment. Um that can quickly adapt and understand um, that it's never going to be a perfect formula. People's preferences, especially viewing preferences in something like a streaming platform, aren't a linear equation that you can solve. So you have to be kind of uh, flexible and adapt and build models that can take in and adapt accordingly. Um, the last little piece and something I didn't think about that also I thought was really interesting was that repeat viewing is huge for platforms like this. Those are people going back and watching the same things over and over and over again. Now, there's a probably the logical common thought is, well, once I've already watched something, a platform shouldn't suggest it again. I've already watched that. I don't need to see it again. But what these platforms have found is it's actually critical to understand uh, the example they use is actually Frozen, the movie. Um, if you have a niece or a daughter or a young female, especially in your life, um, throughout the Frozen phase of the last few years, you will know that you do not just watch that once. As a father, I can tell you of a one-year-old, he's only one, he still doesn't really you know, fully uh, get into TV, but I've watched the same episode of Paw Patrol probably seven or eight times at this point. So being able to have formulas that take those kind of things into consideration that if they're especially young children um, or something targeted at a younger audience, repeat viewing is definitely gonna be uh, something to consider, whereas maybe those, you know, those R-rated movies probably don't know a ton of adults going back and watching those as frequently um, but it doesn't even preclude the possibility so overall it's just fascinating that so much goes into them those things seem like such a basic simple well yeah just find titles similar to what i've already watched you know how, how difficult should that be there's so much more that goes into it and it's a fascinating topic all right guys that's all we have for diving into data today Again, our title today was, Are You Content With Your Content? So we dove into content analytics, talked about not only the type of content metrics you need to be looking at, but specifically for B2B, some things to look at. We also had a little aside about department leadership coming out of the COVID world, um, the post-COVID world, and what you need to be able to do. And we wrapped up, as always, with our industry rapid fire on sports and entertainment. I hope that everyone enjoyed today's episode. I hope that everyone's staying safe and being responsible with all the reopening out there and that things are getting better, not only personally for you, but for your businesses. And until next time, signing off, this is TC Riley. See ya.